Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to episode three of our series, Destination Mars. So far, we've looked at what it takes to be an astronaut and how we can get to the red planet. But this week, we've finally made it there. So we're exploring how to build a home from home on Mars. Plus, news of how plants have bees hooked on caffeine, new insights into how hallucinations happen, and a brain scan to find the cause of epilepsy. I'm Georgia Mills. And I'm Kat Arney, And this is The Naked Scientists. Up first, epilepsy is a brain condition that causes patients to fit and lose consciousness. In the process, they can injure themselves and the condition can seriously affect a person's quality of life. Now, scientists have developed a brain scanning technique that can find the source of a patient's fits, meaning they can potentially be cured surgically. It works by homing in on hot spots in the brain that contain increased amounts of the chemical glutamate, which signals excited nerve cells, as neurologist and co-inventor of the technique, Kate Davis, explains to Chris Smith. Epilepsy is a very common disease affecting 65 million people worldwide, and one-third of those patients actually don't respond to medications. And at times, we actually will consider surgery as an option for a potential cure. So we sought to use a new method to figure out where the seizures are coming from and to help us direct whether or not we can do surgeries or other therapies to help these patients. And in people with epilepsy, what is actually happening in their brain in the first place to cause the condition? So it's thought that there's a mismatch between how much excitation there is and how much inhibition there is when patients have a seizure. The thing we measured in this study uh, measures glutamate, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain that is the most common excitatory neurotransmitter. We hypothesized or thought that looking for increased glutamate in the brain could identify even between seizures where the seizures were coming from. You have a region of the brain which, for some reason then, seems to have too much activity owing to this excitatory chemical glutamate. So you're going to go hunting for where that signal appears to be overrepresented in the brain to find where the epilepsy might be stemming from. Exactly. And then if we can identify where that increased excitation is, we can figure out what the brain network is that is causing the seizures. And then what, go in and do some kind of intervention, such as a surgical one, but with high precision because you know where the problem is to stop it? 
Exactly. We actually um, frequently do epilepsy surgery for these patients. And in fact, sometimes we do very invasive surgeries just to figure out where the seizures are coming from, putting electrodes underneath the skull to further define where the seizure focus is. So how does it work? How have you done this? We perform brain images on a special MRI scanner. To the patient, this is very similar to a typical MRI. However, we're able to use techniques that shake certain parts of the glutamate molecule and enable us to make measurements of the glutamate concentration in the brain. We then can identify the increased glutamate regions and see where the patient's seizures are coming from. Now, how did you prove that where you see an enhanced concentration of glutamate, that that was where the epilepsy was coming from in your patients? These patients are actually all undergoing possible surgical evaluation at our epilepsy center. So as part of that evaluation, all of the clinicians and the neurosurgeons and radiologists make a consensus statement about where we think the seizures are coming from. In one of the patients, they actually underwent something called intracranial EEG monitoring, And in that patient, we showed that the seizures came from the same place as the increased glutamate on our imaging. How big are the areas concerned? These are very small areas in the hippocampus, which is towards the middle or center of the brain. And do you think then that you would be able to to do sort of brain-sparing surgery in these people? Now you know where these very small areas are with high precision and accuracy. We certainly hope so and are continuing to gather more data and hope to use it for clinical decision making in the near future. Will it find the source of epilepsy in everybody or is there a chance it could miss some? It certainly could miss some patients and we simply don't know that yet as this is the first work that we're doing with using this technique. We are continuing to improve upon the technique and have expanded our ability to look at bigger regions of the brain and potentially help other types of epilepsy patients as well that have seizures arising not just from the middle of the temporal lobe, but in other regions of the brain. Pennsylvania University's Kate Davis talking about the discovery she's just published in Science Translational Medicine. Babies use their tongues not just to make sounds, but also to help them to listen, scientists have shown this week. Using a teething toy to temporarily prevent young babies from moving their tongues prevented them from being able to tell apart two subtly different sounds. The discovery is important because it reveals a crucial way in which our speech and language develops. So, should you give your child a dummy? Chris Smith spoke with study author Janet Worker to find out. We brought babies of six months of age who were just learning English, and we had them sit on their mom's lap while they were listening to sounds and having the opportunity to look at a checkerboard on a computer screen. Babies will look at a display when they hear something that they find interesting. We had trials where the babies heard the same sound over and over again, ba, 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 and trials where they heard two different sounds, like ba, da, ba, da. And if the babies can hear the difference, they'll look longer at the checkerboard. Now, in this case, we used two different Ds that are used in Hindi but not English, one produced by pushing the tongue against the front teeth, da, and one produced by curling the tongue back and flipping the underside against the roof of the mouth, da. 
And I, you as an adult English speaker can't hear that difference, but it's obvious to a Hindi adult. And importantly, it's also obvious to a young English learning infant. And how does so, the constraint or restraint of the, the baby's tongue movements come into the equation? Once we had ascertained that babies of six months could indeed discriminate these two Ds that are used in Hindi, then we had two further groups of babies. We had the mums hold a flat teether in the baby's mouth, and importantly, this teether prevented their tongues from moving. In the other condition, we had the mom hold a what we called a gummy teether in their baby's mouth, but it didn't project back over the tongue. And the rationale here is that if you've got something that prevents the tongue moving versus an equivalent oral stimulus, the dummy, that doesn't stop the tongue moving, then they ought to be able to do the discrimination task if it involves moving their tongue around when they've only got the dummy in, but when they've got the teether then that should interfere with their ability to do the task if moving the tongue is important. That's correct. That's indeed what turned out. The flat teether interfered with their ability to discriminate the sounds, whereas when the gummy teether was in their mouth, they looked longer at the checkerboard when they heard the two different D sounds. What do you think the implication of this is then? How do you interpret that result? There are two important implications of these results. One, it provides pretty strong evidence that speech perception involves more than just listening in early infancy. It also involves information from the baby's own motor movements. And the clinical implications are that for babies who are unable to move their tongues through cleft palate, tongue tie, or perhaps through having ventilators in their mouths, these babies may have a deficit in processing speech and hence in learning their native language. What about the question, which I'm sure a lot of parents are now considering hearing this, whether or not to give your child a dummy then? It's an open question whether having dummies interferes with speech perception. We think it's unlikely, however, because a dummy is not in a baby's mouth all the time. They take it out, they move it around, they have ample opportunity to listen to speech and language even when that dummy isn't in their mouth. That's Janet Worker and she's at the University of British Columbia and her study was published in the journal PNAS. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Kat Arney. Still to come, how on earth will we cope with life on Mars? We'll be looking at how we can set up a colony on a distant planet, plus how plants have got bees hooked on caffeine. But before that, have you ever had a hallucination? These are where you hear, feel or see something that isn't really there. We had thought that these experiences were just made up from scratch by the brain. But neuroscientist Paul Fletcher has found that instead, the brain uses our past experiences and superimposes these like a filter or a stencil onto what we're doing right now, creating a hallucination. And people who are more prone to hallucinations, like individuals with certain mental illnesses, seem to be better than average at doing this. Connie Orbach went to see why. Well, we took some stimuli that are very, very difficult to perceive clearly. They just look like black and white blobs when you first see them. And we asked people to try and identify those stimuli. We then gave them a strong clue by showing them the picture from which those stimuli had been created. And when they went back to the original black and white blobby images, they were then able, in some cases, to see what those represented. 
Now, we reasoned that if people with hallucinations are more likely to superimpose their prior expectations or their prior knowledge on noisy images or perceptions, then uh, they might actually be better at this task. They might show more of an advantage. What did you find between the two groups? Well, the key difference was that if you go from before having seen the clear template to after, everybody gets better because they've all been given some prior information that allows them to perceive the image more clearly. But we found that um, the degree to which there was an improvement was significantly greater in people who are prone to hallucinations. What we're talking about here is an image. Is it just visual perception or is this with other forms of prior sensory information? So it's certainly the case that across the, the, the different sensory domains, touch, taste, hearing, smell, etc., that we think that people use what they already know in order to perceive it more clearly. So I've got an example of an auditory version of this sort of task. It's not identical, but it's the same sort of thing. So I'll play you this stimulus. I think it said zoo at the end. Ah, But that's about it. Yeah, that's very good, actually. Most people hear that as a sort of meaningless, clangy, mechanical birdsong type sound. But if you then uh, play the clear version from which that speech was taken... The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. Now you have that prior experience, and we can go back to the original one, and it should be much, much clearer because you have that prior knowledge. That was with the auditory. Could you show me some of the visual images? Sure. So I'll show you this image here. Okay, so it's hard to explain, but in the same way that the auditory one was, you could hear it, but you couldn't make it out. It's similar. It's just a black and white image, but looks like blobs, as yeah. you explained. Can you see yeah. anything in it? Um, no. I'm really trying to like impose an image on it, but actually, no, I can't see anything at all. Okay, I'm now going to show you the clear version from which that picture was taken. It's almost completely clear. So the picture was of um, a woman with a cowboy hat on kissing the nose of a horse. And then when you go back, you can clearly see the outline of her face, her hat and the nose of the horse within the black and white image. But there was absolutely no way I could see that before. Right. Yeah. So that's these images were specially designed for that so that you really people mostly couldn't pick up very much at all. Um, And then we were able to give the, the clear image and then test them the second time. And just as you did, a lot of people found that they could now see them, but people who were prone to hallucinations and and such like actually showed a greater advantage there. But what's key here and what we wanted to show is we can understand the mechanism perhaps by which hallucinations arise through appealing to the normal perceptual mechanism. And rather than just speculating on some gross derangement of function in the brain or some lesion or something, we can actually begin to think about the mechanics of how the experience arises. And what we're suggesting is the hallucination, just like normal perception, is to an extent a creative process based on what you already know. It's interesting that perception is an active form and it's not passive as Mm. maybe has been thought. Yeah, so a lot of people in the past have speculated on perception as uh, a very accurate picture of the world that we get simply by listening to what's coming in actually what's coming in is very ambiguous and it's also very noisy we can sample the world in terms of heat light force chemical composition so we have these signals that are very useful coming in but somehow we have to assemble that into our reality and in order to do that we really need to bring something of what we already know otherwise it's i think we would view the world like babies Uh, You know, it would be a mass of colours and shapes and noises that we really couldn't understand. That was Paul Fletcher from the University of Cambridge. 
Well, I don't know about you, but for me, caffeine is a great way to wake me up in the morning. But it's not just humans who hanker for the enlivening effect of a cup of coffee. According to researchers at the University of Sussex, plants have got honeybees hooked on caffeine. By lacing their nectar with the drug, caffeine-craving insects are lured back repeatedly to the same plants for a drink, pollinating them in the process, as discoverer Margaret Cuvillon explains to Caris Lestrange. We found in our study that Plants may be tricking their pollinators, in this case the honeybee, into foraging and recruiting in ways that are benefiting not necessarily the bee, but the plant. This particular trickery seems to be happening through the action of caffeine, which is a compound that's found in a lot of plants in very high concentrations in the leaves and the seeds and the stems. It tastes bitter, so it usually has the job of detracting herbivores. But it's also found in low concentrations in nectar, even though nectar, unlike leaves, is made to be eaten. And what we have found is that the presence of caffeine in the nectar of some of these plants can be causing the honeybees to behave as if the nectar is of much better quality than it really is. These plants seem to be tricking the bees into getting their nectar then. Yeah, exactly. So caffeine is pharmacologically active and it It seems to be acting in the reward pathways of the bees. And across the board, in in all the measures of foraging and recruitment, we see that caffeine has a a huge response in making the bees more loyal and more faithful to that particular source. How did you measure these findings? What we did is we trained honeybee foragers to collect from either one of two feeders. They both had a sweet sucrose solution, which acts like nectar. And they were equally sweet. But one feeder additionally had caffeine in it that, in a concentration that's normally found in nectar. And the bees were trained to one of these two locations and they foraged at it for three hours. And then we collected data on their foraging behavior, on their recruitment behavior that was going on back in the hive. And then starting the next day on some post-exposural behavioral effects as well. What did you find from these methods that you used? Compared to the control feeder, and remember, of course, they're of equal sweetness. Honeybees are very sensitive to to sweetness. And so if we see any behavioral differences, it would be because of the caffeine, not because of the sweetness. We found that between the two, the caffeinated forage caused the honeybees to forage more. They performed many more waggle dances, and they were both more likely to perform a waggle dance, and then they performed more of them. Then these are the recruitment events that tell their nestmates that there's something good in the landscape that they need to exploit. And then the next day, after the feeders were empty, we saw that the exposure of caffeine had a post-exposural effect for many days. So the bees that had foraged on caffeine came back just to check the feeder, both more number of times and for more days. And this is a behavior that's called persistency. And then lastly, the bees that had foraged on caffeine were less likely to explore the area nearby when they would come back to check the feeder. They only would check their feeder, whereas the bees that had been trained to the control were more likely to explore the area nearby. So we saw huge behavioral effects. Did you find that this affected many of the bees in the colony? Did more bees want to go to the caffeinated nectar? Because of the way our experiment was set up, we couldn't actually monitor what those are called the recruits, so the bees that were not trained but just got the information that there was something good. 
Because there was such a big effect on the number of dances, we would predict that there would be more newbies coming from the hive to check out the caffeinated versus the decaffeinated. What conclusions can we draw from this then? It seems that caffeine, this compound that's interestingly found in nectar, it's causing the bees to overestimate the forage quality and makes them forage and recruit in ways as if it were of much better quality than, for example, the control. And because of this, the colony is perhaps foraging in suboptimal ways, so it's not exploiting the resources equally, even though they are equal energetically. And this could uh, this suggests that maybe the relationship between the pollinator and the plant is less of a cooperative mutualism and more of an exploitation. I never knew that bees were as addicted to caffeine as I clearly am. That's Dr Margaret Cuvion from Sussex University and her study was published in Current Biology earlier this week. The idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we delve into the world of synthetic biology, building living machines from molecular parts that can do anything you can imagine. Plus, is sociability in your genes? And our gene of the month is looking for wedded bliss. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills. And with me, Kat Arney. In the previous two programmes, we've been considering the prospects of human missions to Mars. We've looked at what it takes to be an astronaut and how we might get there. And this week, we're asking what life might be like on Mars for the would-be colonists. Later on, we'll be looking at how to keep Martians healthy and what kind of role synthetic biology might play in making it all possible. But first, what can we expect when we actually arrive on Mars? David Rothery is Professor of Planetary Geoscience at the Open University. Of course, Mars is a planet, so to say what Mars is actually like is rather similar to saying what Earth is actually like because there are many different settings on Mars. But the big difference with the Earth is that there's not much atmosphere. I mean, the pressure exerted by the atmosphere at the surface is less than a hundredth of what you'll experience on the Earth, and it's not breathable air anyway. Say you and I have solved the uh, the challenges of interplanetary travel. We've just hopped over to Mars and we've very foolishly stepped out of our spaceship. What would happen? What would kill us first? Well, I hope we're not going to step outside the spaceship without wearing a spacesuit, pretty much the same kind of spacesuit as you'd need to wear in a total vacuum, because Mars, Mars's atmosphere is very, very tenuous. The atmospheric pressure is less than a hundredth what we've got on the Earth. So even if the air on Mars was breathable, which it isn't because it doesn't have oxygen in it, it would not be nearly dense enough to breathe. So you need to protect yourself in a spacesuit. You also need to keep warm. By day, it can be a you know, well above zero centigrade, you know, a nice warm 10 degrees or something. But in the winter, it's a lot colder than that. And certainly at night, it gets extremely cold. So the cold would kill you if you didn't have a way to, to keep warm. If you're going to stay on Mars a long time, you've got to worry about um, cosmic rays, solar wind particles. Mars has no magnetic field to deflect these, so you would get a radiation dose by wandering around on the surface of Mars. You'd probably have a worse, well, you would have a worse radiation dose on your journey from Earth to Mars because you'd be out in, 
in space and wouldn't have a planet hiding half the sky. So radiation is an issue, but uh, not the biggest issue on the surface. I guess first things first, we need to set up a base. What kind of things would we need to take into account when we're deciding where to put it? If we want to survive, we go somewhere that's warm and cosy and has resources. Now, if you want to go somewhere warm, that's rather incompatible with finding somewhere where there's accessible ice, uh, if you want water. So I guess we can keep ourselves warm with some solar panels to make electricity. So I'd say go somewhere where we can get at some water. So you go to the polar caps, but that's very, very cold. Maybe go to a lower latitude where you think there's some ice uh, a few centimetres or a few metres below the ground and you can dig for the ice. But the trouble is, if you want to drink that ice, you've got to purify it because it's probably pretty salty. And I don't just mean table salt, sodium chloride. I mean perchlorates. They're, they're quite nasty alkaline salts. So you've got to be prepared to purify it. You mentioned using solar power. Is this the most feasible way to generate energy while you're on Mars? It's, it's almost never cloudy on Mars. Sometimes there's a dust storm which blots out the sun. But by day, you've got clear skies. The intensity of the sunlight, because you are further from the sun, is a half or less what it is on the Earth. But that's plenty. Solar panels can generate lots of electricity for you. I mean, there's no point setting up a windmill. I mean, the winds do blow and they blow quite fast. But the atmosphere is so tenuous, there's not much power in that. So forget wind power. Uh, solar power is the way to generate energy on Mars. And what about oxygen? You mentioned the atmosphere's uh, pretty rubbish, really, for breathing. Would we have to take all of our own? Well, the atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is two-thirds oxygen. So you can, with the use of electricity, split that apart and get some oxygen out of it. Or you can get oxygen from water. So there is oxygen. There is oxygen in the rocks. The rocks are silicates, which is silicon dioxide and various metals. In fact, the Martian surface rocks are extremely oxidised. Mars is rusty. That's why it looks so red. Now, that's oxygen that's there, but if you can use a bit of electricity or any kind of power or chemical process to get that oxygen out of the rocks and get oxygen atoms to bond together to form O2, the oxygen molecule, then you've got something you can breathe. So there's plenty there. It will cost you effort to get at it, though, and turn it into breathable form. Now, thinking long term, how would we provide ourselves with food? Could you ever grow food on Mars? I think you would be taking quite a gamble if you were the first person to arrive on Mars and were relying on growing your food because plants require all kinds of trace elements which may or may not be there in the soil. The stuff at the surface of Mars isn't really a, a soil as we know it on Earth. Of course, there's no organic content or very little organic content and it's mostly very fine-grained very oxidising fragments. But plants have been grown in Martian regolith simulants on Earth, so there's a fair chance you can grow things on Mars. We're not sure how they'd cope with the weaker gravity. The Martian gravity is one-third what it is on the Earth. That's probably strong enough to give plants a good sense of what's up and what's down, which they need. There's enough sunlight, and if you've got water from the ground or from melting ice, it's certainly viable to grow plants on Mars. Just a bit tricky. Just a bit tricky. Probably more than a bit tricky. <laughs> uh, but it's a problem that somebody will overcome one day. That was David Rothery from the Open University.
Now, say we do defeat these immediate challenges, food, shelter, breathing, then what? What would you actually do on Mars? And would people be able to tolerate the isolation and the deprivation? Ashley Dove-Jay is from Bristol University and he took part in a Mars simulation in Utah to find out. Hi, Ashley. Hi. So tell me about the simulation. What was it? How did it work? So, yeah, I was uh, part of an astronauts on Mars simulation study in collaboration with uh, NASA, the European Space Agency and about two dozen other entities. And uh, this study was conducted at the uh, the Mars Desert Research Station in the high altitude desert of Utah, a place chosen for its likeness to Mars. Um, I was actually the crew commander in a, in a team of seven scientists and engineers. And uh, whilst being subjected to psychological and uh, protocol studies, we conducted a wide range of experiments, all very relevant to pushing forward the frontier in an effort to, to get people to Mars. And was it really an accurate reflection of what life would be like on Mars? You know, did you have any contact with the outside world? How, how did it work? We tried to make it as, as accurate as possible. We really were isolated. Communications between us and mission support were delayed by between 3 and 21 minutes, depending on where Earth and Mars are in their orbits. There's there's quite a significant time lag. So we really had to be independent. Whenever we stepped outside to do field work, we had to get a spacesuit on. We were outside for a limited period of time with the uh, the oxygen supply we had. We we took it as far as we could, really. Even the food we were eating was uh, the kind of stuff you'd eat on Mars, dehydrated powder. You, you, you don't realise how much you, you miss chewing food. Well, I, I certainly, having done these programmes for three weeks, I am not cut out to go and be a Martian. So, uh, tell me again, how long were you there for? So it was a, a two-week uh, simulation we conducted probably about two dozen uh, experiments, everything from psychological studies to astrobiology work, rover testing, protocol testing, a whole range of things. Did you have to cope with any emergencies? Were there any uh, sort of simulations of things you might have to repair or, or unexpected situations to deal with? Well, yeah, this, this is the thing. I mean, th- those people on Mars, because of that time lag, are going to need to be a lot more independent. So if something goes wrong, they don't have mission support to immediately lean on. They they need to figure out their their own way out of a problem. Now, what if you're out doing field work and your your radio stops working? What if somebody out doing field work sprains their ankle? How how do you even pick up somebody that's uh, injured in a spacesuit in a safe way? How do you get them back to the habitat module? What if something more subtle has occurred to somebody and nobody really knows what to do. How do you communicate with mission support in the most efficient way to to resolve that issue? There are thousands of questions like these that need to be addressed now before we go. And uh, that that was one major aspect of uh, what we were doing. When we did the first in this series, we looked at the sort of the what does it take to be an astronaut and the, the psychological side of it. And I have to say, how was it? being in that situation with people? Because I personally, I would be ready to kill if I was stuck in a small <laughs> thing with the same people for two weeks. Well, that's the thing. Personal space is something you completely lose. If, you, if you're not within eyeshot of someone, you're, you're definitely within earshot. You know, the thing is, you're always in each other's faces. And if there's any disagreements, any arguments, the option to walk away is simply not there. You can't just step outside. You need to be able to diffuse these sorts of situations before they happen. And for for a Mars mission, the one trait more than any for an astronaut to have is they have to have a cool head. They need to be slow to anger. 
in my opinion, psychology really is the, the single biggest risk factor when it comes to sending people to Mars. We, we can't predict how people are going to behave in such a prolonged and intense environment. Almost every system around you is mission critical. If it fails, you die. How do people react to that over the long term? And in terms of uh, an actual Martian mission, you know, how, how much of it would be experiments? How much of it would be sort of the... Would it actually be quite humdrum, do you think? Did, did you get that feeling over the two weeks of the, the simulation? Well, in reality, you're on a trip to and from Mars and one way it's about six months and most of that's going to be automated. So you really are going to be sitting there twiddling your thumbs. And how do you how do you overcome that boredom? I'm not quite sure. Uh, read books, uh, watch movies, who knows? I mean, having done that simulation, do you think you would actually go to Mars? If the, if the opportunity came up, would you go like, yeah, I'm I'm going to sign up, I'm going to sign on the line? Well, uh, personally, sure. But the senior management, uh, my wife, uh, I don't think she'd allow that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in terms of more generally the kind of simulations that are, that are going on, uh, going on around the world at the moment, do you think that they are really going to equip people to do this? Or I guess there's going to be things when we get up there, we just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, we're doing the best we can. I mean, there are there are more subtle things that we're we're just not going to be able to figure out until we go there. Um, as mentioned before, the, the the lower gravity. What what sort of effect is that going to have on the human body? Mars has a gravity that's thirty eight percent that of the Earth's. Now we've we've had astronauts in the International Space Station doing long term studies on what microgravity does to them, but we don't know what thirty eight percent gravity does to the human body. Uh, and there's no real way of figuring that out until we go there. <laughs> um, thank you very much. That's uh, Ashley Dovejay from the University of Bristol, who has been on a Mars simulation in Utah. One of the problems with living in a remote location like Mars is how you stay healthy and accurately diagnose health problems. After all, the nearest decent hospital will be over seven months away. In Star Trek, they solved this problem with a machine called the Tricorder. This is a small handheld device which scans you and, bing, knows what's wrong. While this is still very much in the world of science fiction, it has served as the inspiration for a device being developed at the University of Leicester, and this is known as the DDU. This aims to look, smell and feel a patient to try and diagnose them. I went along to see for myself. Hi, Mark. Pleased to meet you. You want around with a big microphone, it's a bit of a giveaway. (laughs) Yeah, it's a clue to who I am. I'm Professor Mark Sims. I work in the Space Research Centre at the University of Leicester and I'm co-director of the Diagnostics Development Unit at the Leicester Royal Infirmary. The Diagnostics Development Unit is a unit which attempts to do non-invasive diagnosis of disease ultimately and we're doing that through sort of three different uh, methodologies. Going back to what sort of ancient medicine did in terms of looking at a patient smelling a patient and uh, feeling the pulse of a patient. It smells people, it looks at people. Why is this better than the traditional way of diagnosing illnesses? And the idea of this is that some tests take hours for the results to come back. Can you get some information without sticking needles in them with the complications of infection and stuff like that, which aids the clinician in terms of actually doing their work, treating the patient earlier, perhaps ruling out some things, and ultimately perhaps even diagnosing given conditions. But before we get there, we need to know what a normal human being is and what signals or data you would associate with each, each of the different types of measurement for a different condition. 
the hope is once we know what a normal patient looks like and we know what some of these conditions are like, we can come up with a real firm probability it's X, Y, Z. We're a few years away from that. At the moment, we're analysing the individual data and we're going to need some help from some mathematicians and artificial intelligence experts in order to put this together and actually get it to work and become something which ultimately, you know, won't just be in hospitals, perhaps in the GP surgery, perhaps even in a chemist, perhaps even at home, ultimately, if you get the price of these uh, gadgets down low enough. Can I see some of this in action? You certainly can, yes. Brilliant. The DDU is based deep in the hospital, where it's been operational for a few years gathering data. It's basically a small cupboard, chock full of expensive-looking scanners and monitors designed to look smell and feel their patients. I'm Lisa McClelland, the research nurse for the DDU. You're looking at the mass spectrometer, which does the smells a bit like a sniffer dog. The compounds that it's actually been picking up is it has a tendency to be able to pick up cancer and sepsises, infections throughout your breath, just through the molecules that travel around through these two pieces of equipment, breathing in and out pipes, travel all the way back around the machine and back into the computer. Once you've been smelled to check you're all shipshape, the machine needs to take a look at you. So next up in the DDU's medical arsenal, we've got the thermal imager. Mark, if you want to put your hand on the wall. So with the camera. Oh, wow. OK. We're looking on the back of the camera, there's a screen, and you can see this glowing orange handprint. You can actually see the temperature difference from my hand on the wall when I remove it. So that small change in temperature is enough to actually be picked up by modern technology. And it's also great in terms of the the spatial resolution as well. So you can tell fine structure in the skin. You can look at whether people are undergoing shutdown, i.e. the blood is retreating to the core. And as it does, that's when the classic symptoms are going from fever into a so-called state of sepsis, which is a severe infection. So you smell good, you look healthy, the machine still needs to have a good feel. Just to, just behind you is a bioimpedance thoracic monitor and that was actually came out of the space programme that was developed in the 1960s for the Apollo astronauts to try and come up with a method of actually seeing how well their hearts were beating without lots of sensors. And essentially what it does is it measures measure the electrical resistance in your body and that changes as the blood flows around your system basically. And by looking at a change in resistance, you can tell how well the heart's beating, etc. It seems like some of this kit has already proven its use in space. So is this what the first Martians should consider taking with them? Part of the problem which nobody's really solved or cracked is that if you have a long expedition to Mars or wherever in the solar system, how do you keep your astronauts healthy? And what do you do if they are non-healthy? It's a great problem. How do you treat them medically? You know, the nearest hospital might be 100 million miles away or 150 million miles away, depending on where you are in, in the orbit. I mean, astronauts tend to be very, very healthy people. Scott Kelly, for example, is on the International Space Station. He'll be up there for a year. So a year is probably not an issue. But if you talk of sending people to Mars to form a colony on the surface, then who knows? What kind of things do people get colds in space? What kind of things do you imagine astronauts will be having to deal with? 
Yeah, I mean, people get colds in space, you know, their body fluid distribution changes, their heart pumping action changes. Looks like viruses and bacteria become more virulent in space for reasons we don't understand. So certainly infection is is a potential problem. On another planet, it might be broken bones. You might even need surgery. You know, people develop conditions which, you know, you have to operate on. Otherwise, the only the only alternative is a is a perhaps a painful death. Are there plans to miniaturize some of this equipment and maybe contain it in all one piece? Essentially, yes. The hope is that by studying these patients, you can narrow what you need to look at down. We already know some of the technologies to miniaturize some of those pieces of equipment. The question with miniaturization is: it will ever be sensitive enough to replace these quite expensive research grades? great pieces of equipment. I guess if you're going to Mars, beggars can't be choosers. They don't have a lot of room to work with. That's correct. On a spacecraft, you want a minimum mass, minimum volume, minimum power. You know, what do you take on a mission to Mars? You take an X-ray machine, an ultrasound machine. Do you take some of this equipment or what? You know, and over the next few years, hopefully that'll be sorted out before we send uh, astronauts to the red planet. Professor Mark Sims and his Star Trek-inspired DDU. As Mark mentioned, one of the biggest challenges with going to Mars is what to take with you. Every bit of weight has to be justified and taking lots of stores with you would be hugely expensive. One idea that has been suggested to get round this is to 3D print things there using materials found on Mars. But could we grow various resources such as oil, food or even oxygen by manipulating bacteria? We're joined down the line by Professor Lynn Rothschild. She's an astrobiologist at Brown University and NASA. And she's been exploring the use of something known as synthetic biology in space travel. Hi, Lynn. Hello, how are you? Good. Now, tell me, what is synthetic biology to start with? Well, there are all sorts of fancy definitions, but the easiest way to look at it is that we're able to do something new with biology. So whereas um, we don't hear as well as a bat or run as fast as a tiger or whatever, if we could have those capabilities, if we could mix and match the genes, we could do all sorts of wonderful things. And the same would be true of a bacterium or an alga or a plant or whatever, that you can give it new capabilities that it never had before or perhaps no other organism on Earth ever has had. So say you want some bacteria to, to make rocket fuel, you could do that? Absolutely. I mean, I say absolutely, it depends exactly what you're running your rocket on. But certainly, organisms make fuel. In fact, every time you turn on your car, you're burning products from organisms. They happen to have been dinosaurs, but there's no reason that you couldn't use organisms to make fuel on Mars. How does this actually work? So say we're going to Mars and we want to have these manipulated bacteria there. What do you need? Well, we need some sort of infrastructure, just like you have in a lab. And I think the best way to imagine is if you've ever been through um, a distillery or a beer production facility, you have vats where you have microbes. In the case of beer, for example, they're yeast cells that are metabolizing some kind of input, whether it's grass or whatever, and then they're producing alcohol. Instead of grass, we would be using other sorts of photosynthetic organisms, probably some sort of a microbe like a a cyanobacterium. If you're very old like I am, we used to call them blue-green algae. And um, for your production organism, we might be using a yeast cell. As you say, we might be using a bacterium. And then you're able to produce 
honestly, anything from a, a leather simulant to food to perfume to clothing to rocket fuel. Um, I really believe that we could make just about anything you need using biology. And in terms of the actual the DNA stuff, how would you take that? Well, easy, because you're if you're taking a human, you're taking lots of DNA. In fact, not one of the spacecraft we have ever sent anywhere has been completely sterilized, has been removed. So we've already sent DNA all over the solar system and beyond. In terms of bringing up small quantities, we could certainly do that in cells. We're working right now with a particular bacterium, Bacillus subtilis, that forms a very resistant spore. These spores have been flowing out on space on satellites for over two years, so we know they're highly resistant. So we could send the DNA in the spore form. We could dry it and send it. But ultimately, we won't even want to do that. We're going to want to break this physical link. And so what we'll want to do is, on the Earth, send information to how to make new DNA, and the colonists on Mars will take that information and actually print new sequences of DNA. From my understanding of synthetic biology, it's a lot about having kind of standard components and, and parts, almost like a library that you can just pick and choose. I mean, what, what kinds of properties could potentially be put into bacteria that we could uh, take to Mars? There's a very, very active community working on this on planet Earth for Earth-based applications. And so people are already involved in all the sorts of things that I mentioned, from perfumes and fuels to certainly anti-malarial drugs, other sorts of drugs. But the, the real conceit of all this is that when you take up, for example, a computer, you're t lifting up a lot of mass into space and your computer goes bad, what do you do? You can't really call for another one to be delivered the next day. And so you're going to have to deal with what you have. And biology as a technology has incredibly appealing properties. The big one is that it replicates itself. I mean, if you had computers that replicated themselves, no big deal. Or your clothing, you put down your, your trousers in the evening and they're two in the morning, that would be great. But that's not the way physical things work. But that's the way biology works. And furthermore, if it's damaged, it can repair itself. And so when you start to think of biology as a technology, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. Would there be risks then of releasing these manipulated bacteria on Mars? The biggest problem with sending things to Mars is that there is a possibility that there is an indigenous Martian biota. And honestly, that would be the biggest scientific discovery in the history of biology if we found a second life form, and particularly if it was in the next planet over. So if we sent astronauts and all these organisms and so on and we destroyed our possibility of finding a second life form, that would be an enormous scientific tragedy. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That's Lynn Rothschild from Brown University. And there's more about synthetic biology in this month's Naked Genetics podcast. While it's clear that the technical challenges are enormous, if we ever set up a one-way trip to Mars, how would the first settlers function as a society? What kind of laws would exist, if any, to start with? And what would happen to the first child born on Mars? These are questions being considered by astrobiologists and ethicists, including Tony Milligan from King's College London, who joins us now. Hi, Tony. Hi. Say we have a colony on Mars and there's a group of people who plan to stay there long term. How would that work in terms of keeping law and order? If it's a very small group of people, they're just going to inherit the initial command structures 
of programmes to get to Mars. So we had Ashley speaking about being crew commander of a group of seven people. But if you begin to introduce larger numbers of people, something more like a, a stable human community with the prospect of staying there and rearing children and so on, it's not obvious that you can scale up that authority structure so that it works. And there is a danger here. And the danger is that in some respects, the political structures that Mars guides you towards are not necessarily going to be stable ones. And what I mean by that is that it's an exceptionally dangerous environment. A great many things can kill you. The settlers would be immensely vulnerable, a situation in which anyone who controls, say, the oxygen supply or who was in control of the water supply would be effectively in a position to establish some form of political dominance. And that's that's a dangerous thing because we know that authoritarian systems create their own culture of dissent, as it were. And under the exceptionally vulnerable circumstances of Mars, we couldn't afford to have the kinds of violent dissent that we have down here on Earth. I see. So a rebellion would probably just end up wiping everyone out who was there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. We, we all die in a, in a rebellion. Yep. <laughs> Not ideal then. So if Mars lends itself to a dictatorship like this, do you foresee that democracy is, is feasible? Yes, I do, strangely enough. And the reason for that is that dictatorships are precisely what generate dissent. So I think in the long run, the most stable structures would be those which, which allowed people to feel included and which allowed people to feel that their arguments and that their problems were, were, were tackled. However, not a democracy of a sort that, that would look anything like terrestrial democracy. There would have to be significant differences. This is going to be, excuse the pun, so alien from anything we have here on Earth. How how do we go about setting up these new rules? What do we need? How do we do it? How do we do it? Oh, gosh, gosh. You can approach this from two directions. One is advanced planning. You draw up something like a map to transition from initial command structures to a more democratic structure. And that's kind of the ideal And the second option is you rely upon the settlers themselves. At some point in time, they're going to turn around and say, look, the the Earth is exceptionally remote. We don't have to do what the Earth tells us anymore. And that's a little bit more dangerous, but that's also a foreseeable pathway, as it were, to a specifically Martian political system. I'm thinking now of um, the settlers from Europe going over to America and then America declaring its uh, independence. Could we have a Martian Independence Day? I think we could, but we can't all, as it were, dance like it's 1776. We can't have that large scale militarised upheaval because, again, everyone dies in a military conflict. If you blow up the tea on Mars, yeah, everyone dies. It just, it, if the tea goes, then everyone goes with it. Yeah. <laughs> and thinking long term, if these colonies do succeed and someone gets born on Mars, I guess they would technically be a Martian? Yes, yes. And they're going to have certain problems because whereas it may be the case that the initial settlers could come back to Earth if, if things go badly. For those born in Mars, it's extremely unlikely that their physiology could cope with a, a return to Earth. Their, their bone density wouldn't be right for it. So we, we have to get this right. If we're 
going ahead with this process and if we are bringing people into into being under circumstances which are not of their own choosing, then we have to ensure that there is the possibility of a good life for them. Yes, that's quite sad, being born on Mars, seeing Earth and all the fun we're having and then not being able to come back. Yeah, yeah, being just on the, on the edge of the carnival and you can't go in. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. That's Tony Milligan from King's College London. And thank you to our other guests this week. That's Ashley Dovejay and Lynn Rothschild. Now, with Halloween just around the corner, Rosalind Davis has been investigating Stephen's spooky question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week. Brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation. Supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Are zombies feasible? Zombies are most commonly known as reawoken human corpses with a hankering for brains and have long been centre stage of both films and nightmares alike. While the dead are unlikely to rise any time soon, could anything make the living behave like zombies? There's been a mixed response on Facebook, with Rachel saying, I hope not, I'd be the first to go, and Dante speculating that the Pentagon has a panic room as a precaution in case of a zombie outbreak. This was all getting out of hand, so I recruited two experts to help this week to look at both viral and parasitic possible causes. Dr Susie English from the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University explains the main viral threat. Classic fictional zombies infect their victims through bites. This may be inspired by a real-life group or genus of viruses called lysoviruses, commonly known for causing rabies. Once bitten, rabies infects the central nervous system. Symptoms include confusion, aggression, and a characteristic fear of water. Rabies is associated with a very large concentration of virus in saliva, leading to a high risk of transmission from bites, licks, and scratches. It has a 100% mortality rate once symptoms begin, which is why there's been immense fear of rabies across time and cultures. So it's plausible in a viral sense, but what about zombies caused by parasites? Khalil Thurlaway is an immunology PhD student from Nottingham University. There are already lots of parasites that are experts at taking control of their hosts. Take the zombie ant fungus, for example, Ophiocordyceps. An ant comes into contact with fungal spores, which germinate and grow through the ant's exoskeleton. Through mechanisms that we don't yet fully understand, the fungus takes control of the host and forces it to climb up a plant stem and clamp onto a leaf stalk. Having locked the ant's jaws shut, the parasite grows throughout the host's body, producing antimicrobial chemicals to stop the body rotting. When the fungus has totally consumed the ant's insides, the fruiting body bursts out of the ant's head and spreads the next generation of spores, ready to infect more unsuspecting ants. Ugh, terrifying stuff. But, say a virus or parasite like this did exist, could it really wipe us out? Well, researchers have looked at Hollywood depictions of zombie apocalypses to model pandemics of new emerging viruses. One 2009 study made headlines by explicitly using a light-hearted approach to play out various scenarios, including whether or not to quarantine infected human hosts who have not yet turned into zombies. According to their research, a zombie outbreak could lead to the collapse of civilization as we know it. But is it feasible that a zombie-like disease could emerge in the first place? No, it's not likely. There's no currently known virus that produces zombie-like qualities. It might, however, be possible to engineer such a disease using the new discipline of synthetic biology. I hope that allays your fears, Stephen. Zombies are probably going to stay science fiction. Although, 
I think I'll try and get a pass to the Pentagon's panic room, just in case. Thanks to Susie English and Khalil Furlaway for those answers. Next week, we'll be scanning the horizons to answer Eleanor's question. Why do so many people enjoy looking at views? Any psychologists out there who can help us with the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on our forum. That's at thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Well, that just about wraps things up for this week. Many thanks to Georgia Mills for production. So our Mars series draws to a close next week and we want to know from you, should we go? Could we go? And would you go? We'll be asking whether we can ethically, financially and scientifically justify a trip there. Drop us a line, chris at thenakedscientist.com. We want to hear from you about your thoughts on life on Mars. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Kat Arney and thank you for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.